In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammy and Sandy. Karen Manja joins us this week on Money Tales. Once when navigating an unstable job, Karen faced job loss panic. Her rational mind could not control her wild imagination that she might not work again and wouldn't have enough money for food. This shook Karen to her core because it wasn't true. She had already created a financial safety net and her financial advisor demonstrated that she had plenty of funds available to get her through this period. As Karen shares in this episode, she learned a very important lesson from this experience about the difference between her head and her heart when it comes to money. Let me tell you more about Karen. She's an internationally recognized thought leader whose TEDx appearance, keynotes, blogs, and books reach hundreds of thousands of business leaders each year. She's a catalyst, creator, connector, and coach who uses curiosity and diversified creativity to empower individuals, teams, and organizations to ignite innovation and sustain success. Here are three key money topics Karen hits on in this conversation. First, what it was like to be educated by her family in personal finance and to learn as an adult how uncommon that is for other professional women. Second, how Karen measures the return of her investments by how she's able to use her financial capital to benefit others. And third, how imposter syndrome creeped into her psyche when Karen thought her financial independence was at risk. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now onto our conversation with Karen Manja. Welcome to the Money Tales podcast. I'm Cami Doder. And I'm Sandy Brager. Cami, a topic that comes up with clients is insurance because as comprehensive wealth managers, we want to make sure the clients that we work with have all of their major risk covered. And oftentimes insurance is a very convenient way to cover those risks. I have a short story today about an insurance situation my family has just gone through regarding our beloved pet, Disco. She is our dog who just turned three and she's had a series of surgeries over the last couple of months. And I have been relating with my husband and how glad we are that we happen to have had pet insurance. The idea behind insurance is you want to have it if you have exposure to risk that would be expensive and inconvenient and maybe impossible to cover if something were to happen. So in the case of disco, these surgeries were quite expensive. We could have been able to like handle the cost, but they came out of the blue. We weren't expecting them and there was a series and they had high price tags. So in the end, we were happy to have the insurance. But I remember when we first got her, I was just uncertain about whether we should get it or not. She's our first pet. We haven't had any experience. We don't know how expensive pets were. It was really helpful for us. 
<laughs> this week. Oh, poor disco. That's are expensive. They are so expensive. And I'm glad you brought this up because it's easy to not consider insurance. But I do know from talking to any dog owners in particular, they're always taking them in for something. The key is really to pay attention to the premiums that you're paying relative to the overall coverage to make sure the math works out. Make sure it makes sense. At the end of the day, it was nice to have some big expenses come through and to not be on the hook for all of them and to have this insurance benefit. Pets are a small microchasm of things that you cover insurance for. The bigger things in life, of course, are disability, property and casualty, and life insurance. So just a good reminder for everyone to take a look at their overall insurance program and make sure that the big risks that they are exposed to are covered. Sandy, are you going to cover yourself for year four with Disco? I think we're going to keep the insurance going, Cammy. <laughs> I think we are. <laughs> Let's see if our guest has any insights on this. I do. You do? <laughs> I am not even kidding you when I say I have spent the last couple of weeks reviewing my own insurance policy. I knew the renewal was coming up and I've been the default person that has stayed with the same company for years. And the last time I really looked at my insurance coverage candidly was when I moved to a new home. And that was in 2017. I'm glad I did a little due diligence because I discovered in my existing policy, there was no clause or insurance covering if the building codes, I live in a historical neighborhood, if any of the codes had changed to bring you up to those standards. Oh yeah, that's a biggie. That could be really expensive. Really expensive. People started doing comparatives and they were saying, are you aware you have a gap here? Are you aware that if your basement floods, you don't have any coverage for that? And I thought to myself, I'm a thinking adult with a job. My grandfather ran a finance and insurance business for years. I should be the first person that's checking in on this every year. And I was diligent enough this year to ask some questions. And I just made some changes, including exploring liability insurance coverage, which for some of your listeners might be a factor as well. If you own a business, work in a small business, do a lot of thought leadership. I'm so glad you brought that up because insurance is really important, but it's on autopilot. Those premium invoices come in and you might see them or they might just be auto debited. So good for you for taking a step back. It is a really good idea for everyone to check their insurance at least once a year. Yes. And great money management is about being mindful like anything else. Asking questions. Karen Manja, it's great to hear from you. And would you take a moment and introduce yourself and share a couple pivotal moments that have taken place in your life that really influenced you? It's such a pleasure to be here. I often say that I am a coach and culinarian and tech executive and generally curious person. And what put me on this path to being where I am today and really a pivotal moment in my own financial journey that I discovered retrospectively is how fortunate I was to be raised in a family where a number of people worked in the financial industry and discussed it with me. If you think back to any holiday growing up at your family gatherings, you probably had the kids table just like we did. Well, the kids' table is in close proximity usually to the adults' table. 
And from my earliest memories, I can think back to my grandfather and my uncles debating topics about money and investing and talking about the stock market. And when I was a kid, my grandfather would get up in the morning and sit down at the table with the newspaper, with all of those stock symbols. And he would, out of that kind of a white bowl with the avocado green trim, he would eat one of those big hay bale looking logs of Nabisco shredded wheat cereal. There we had to break it, pour a little warm milk on it. And then- <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And I would sit on his lap and look at it and I would ask him questions. What I did not understand until much later in life is I was raised in the language of finance and investing. And therefore, it never occurred to me that I wouldn't be responsible for my own money, take an active role in investing in the market. And that language wasn't scary to me because it was a normalized aspect of my life. My father was in the banking business. So same. We would have to count money and learn about turning all the dollar bills the right way. And we learned about budgeting and being frugal. And my parents would go to the grocery store on triple coupon day. And we would talk about saving money and spending less than you earned. And it wasn't until truly I got into more of an executive level role and read Whitney Johnson's book, Disrupt Yourself, where she dedicates one chapter to women in money management making this less scary. And I was shocked when I read how few women invest in the stock market or are investing their money in any way, shape or form, other than it's just sitting in a savings account. And she said in there, I'll never forget this. Ask some of your female friends who earn more money than you what they've done with their money. And I thought, okay, game on, game on lady. (laughs) I did. I asked some of the most senior executive, brilliant women I've ever known and discovered what she said was true. They were essentially holding their money in cash. So here are these smart, bold women taking risks every day in the world of business. And the thought of being proactive about managing their money when statistically speaking, women will live longer and tend to be paid less for what we do. It's like, wow, we're making our own lives a lot harder. And so I saw in retrospect what a gift that was that some of those boring conversations and the comics were a lot more fun and engaging than that list of stock symbols. It made money something to be scared of. It sort of demystified this idea of understanding how to make your money work as hard for you as you work for your money. Demystifying is so powerful. And I love the visual of you with your your grandpa sitting on his lap and going through those stock symbols. And they're teaching you so much along the way spend less than you earn, all these great lessons. I'm curious, were you someone who really adopted all these lessons? Did you do anything different? And if so, what did you do and why? (laughs) It's interesting because when you said that, I thought back to my first job, like probably many women in the Midwest was babysitting. And I would save my babysitting dollars. And I remember saving enough that my dad took me to his bank and undoubtedly had probably bribed one of his employees in advance to have this very official kind of experience with me in an accessible way where I opened a checking account and a savings account and then ultimately got a CD. And it was this interesting experience of learning about even with small amounts of money, you can put that to work for you. I will tell you, I ended up using that money from those CDs, from my babysitting money 
ultimately, once I graduated from university to buy my first bedroom set of furniture, and it all came forward also into the thought of how to be generous with your money. So something that I think about is the more responsible that I am with the way that I spend and invest my money, the more generous I can be with other people. Philanthropy is really important to me, whether that's supporting the arts or providing access to education for people who may not have had the same opportunities for a lot of reasons. That means a lot to me. And so I think about the ROI of money, not just about how do you put it to work so that I can get more and have some sort of luxurious experiences. I think about it in terms of the more responsible I am, the more I'm in a position to give. And that means a lot to me. That's motivating. Karen, thanks for sharing that. It's very motivating just hearing you talk about it with such passion. Tell us about how you started to move in that direction. Was philanthropy always something of importance to you or did you build up to it as you were building in your career and your success? Philanthropy was always important to me. I was the person in lots of student clubs in high school that were all student council and tied to specific causes. I've always wanted to help people and save the world, right? There's been different versions of that over time. What I realized as I got older and also met people in the philanthropy space and served on boards for -for not-for-profits is that at one point, my vision for myself is I'll eventually do well enough in my corporate career that I will leave that career and go be the CEO or an executive of a not-for-profit. And I'll never forget a friend who works in the not-for-profit world sending me a TED Talk that changed my perspective. And I'll paraphrase. Essentially, the person was saying, if you have the earnings power to be an executive and save and invest your money well, you can do more for your causes by writing checks and volunteering some of your time than you can by quitting that high-paying job, taking a much less-paying job, and taking this part mission-centered job. And I thought, isn't that interesting? Because in my mind, the impact was framed as, I must be giving myself full time to that commission or to that purpose. How wonderful it would be I could contribute my executive experience into the world of not-for-profit leadership where budgets are more constrained, candidly. And it was very eye-opening to connect the thought of having a career somewhere else and making potentially a bigger impact on a cause I cared about by staying on the path I was on than it would be by abandoning that path in favor of making that my full-time profession. And not to say you shouldn't do it. It just made me see impact through a different lens and that you don't have to exit what you're doing and take an 80% pay cut or whatever it would be, depending on what you do, in order to serve this noble cause. You can help them make a lot of progress by letting people who do that and who are experts and trained to do it, do that well and partnering with them at the intersection between their need and your interest. And can you tell us about some of your partnership experiences on that scene? One of my favorites is Dress for Success. If you are familiar with the Dress for Success organization, the original concept was initially a couple of nuns saw these women that they were serving who were having difficult times And we're trying very hard to access interviews and get themselves back to or to a place of economic empowerment. And they would meet and get to know these women through serving them in a variety of ways. 
and would get to know their skills and talents. And then they would see these women go on interviews and not get jobs. And amazingly, for what you think of as nuns and their attire, these forward-thinking women thought to themselves, I wonder if it's because they're getting judged by how they dress. Let's face it, professional attire can be very expensive. And so the original framing concept of this not-for-profit was to provide women who are trying to reach for economic empowerment with an interview suit. We will suit you up for success. That started and has become multiple chapters all across the country. And that is now paired with career coaches and people to help you work on your LinkedIn profile or your resume. And they have a beautiful, at least here where I live in Indianapolis, a beautiful boutique where once you get that interview, you go in and it looks like you're at a department store and you have a personal shopper. The only difference is you don't get a bill. I mean, there's dressing rooms. So one of the things that I do because I'm also a professionally trained chef is I bake cookies and individually wrap them and we write a little note and we put it in the dressing room when you come to get those clothes because it's one way to help you suit up for success, that feeling that you're being cared about. Now, what's beautiful is once you get a job successfully, you get to come back to that same boutique and they shop to give you enough clothes. And I am talking toiletries, undergarments, accessories, everything top to bottom to have enough combinations you can make for 10 outfits. And then you can join their professional women's group. So they think about now as a client being a client for life. I also teach and coach in their professional women's group. So these are women getting a first job or working toward a first promotion all the way through women who were clients 25 years ago that are now more senior in their careers and looking toward retirement and wanting to give back. I find feeding that cycle of economic empowerment for women specifically really speaks to me. And it's a combination of doing things that are unseen. No one knows I'm the princess of the puff pastry or the cookie fairy making all these treats. But at the same time, as people land a job and they're looking for their next level of how do you brand yourself or how do you differentiate yourself for a promotion, which is a different activity, or you get that first people manager job hosting workshops and activities to teach and share some of those skills as well. It's one of my favorite partnerships. We also, I'll lead clothing drives and go collect everybody's suits and purses and jewelry and take it to the cleaners and get everything hung up. Being a part of that is really meaningful along with doing financial contributions. Karen, I love this story. It's bringing to life all the things you talked about, what you learned. You've done a lot of things. You're a professional chef. You've been in tech. Describe your career and tell us, were you motivated by money? Was that the primary driver? I told you I wanted to work at a not-for-profit. So that's probably an indication that it wasn't. And when you were saying that about career and being driven, something that I appreciate about Dress for Success is one of the modules they have in the professional women's group is about financial literacy and budgeting. And the last time I spoke for an event there, at the end of the evening, they hand out these recognition awards. And we gave a standing ovation to a woman who had completed their whole budgeting and financial literacy series of classes and had paid off six bills. We stood and gave her a standing ovation. I thought, isn't this interesting? I mean, if no one taught you about that, that weighs us down in big and small ways. And it can be very proportional to your situation as well. I thought, isn't that great? What would happen if every time you bought a stock or saved money or paid off a bill, someone stood up and clapped for you. You'd be very motivated to keep going and apply that knowledge. I have always been a strategic thinker and I love to learn. As I thought about my career initially, I thought I wanted to be in music education. I am musical. 
You do everything, Karen. Really? I can't play sports. So people always say, what can you not do? I'm like, sports. You draw the line there. (laughs) But I've always loved storytelling. I've always loved people. I've always loved problem solving. So I like to learn new things. And what I've discovered about myself over time is I am not motivated by mastery. So I don't need to be an iron chef. I just want to be a chef. I don't need to be a chief revenue officer. I've been a sales leader. So I'm more motivated by discovery than by mastery. And that's part of how this complex web of experiences works for me. And I will tell you in the entrepreneurship world that I'm in now, every skill I've ever built and every person I've ever met is wildly useful. It's like I have every job I've ever had all at the same time. What motivates me is learning, discovery, problem solving, and the opportunity to make an impact on people. And so that started out early in my career at AT AT&T in project management. I'm an organized person. You need to communicate. Great. Very quickly, I was offered a sales role, which felt scary because I didn't know anything about sales. And it felt scary because I didn't work with people who had commission-oriented jobs. So it felt scary to me. I would risk part of my pay, even though I could work very hard, I might make less money. And so I worked with some executive mentors and folks through that process. And what I discovered was I really liked learning about problems businesses and people were trying to solve and thinking about how our solutions could help them. So I guess you could call it a business not-for-profit concept in a sense. You think about helping, thinking about making an impact, thinking about storytelling. After I had done enough sales and sales leadership across AT&T and Cisco, I thought to myself, what else? because I love to learn. And again, I'm not motivated by mastery. So doing one job and then going all the way up the stack to become the very best and the top at it is not inspiring to me. And so I was able to take that experience and do a little bit of a shift toward leading the partner experience team and also ultimately the customer experience team at Cisco. This was the benefit of everything that you learn in sales and leadership is helpful because you need to get curious about the problems to be solved. It's just that now you're learning operations because a lot of what you hear involves operationally making some adjustments or changing how we go to market. So that was my opportunity to move into strategy, move into operations. And I found I really liked that. Once I got far enough with that and I was leading customer experience globally for Cisco, they started asking me to talk about what we were doing. How did our customer listening work? How did we make improvements? And we were doing some pretty innovative things with building the center of excellence. That led me to start blogging about what we were doing and then to start speaking about what we were doing. And that's ultimately how Salesforce found me and asked me to come lead market strategy and thought leadership and customer experience there. So you're just doing stuff you're really passionate about and finding successful. And I think about this. I know when I'm starting to feel a little stale Like I'm not learning something new and I don't feel as excited about it. That's my internal compass that says, maybe you need to learn something or get a new challenge. And it doesn't always have to be at work. That can be going to get a degree from culinary school. That can be getting more engaged with a not-for-profit. It's just, I need to stimulate myself to be the best version of myself. And through that journey, I think about very often education, experience, and exposure. My framing on it is, what do I want to learn next? Who do I want to meet next? And what do I want to try next? Even if it's just, I'm going to shadow somebody or sample a little bit of something, I kind of frame it up that way. I've never been a person that's had this single job title outcome. I like to learn things. I like to meet new people. I like to try new things. And I'm very focused on how I feel when I'm in those interactions. 
if you're just chasing the money, you might take that job if it looks like it paid really well. I love hearing about your career history and how you've built all of your different skills and interests and it just keeps building and spreading and moving. I'm curious, Karen, what has been your relationship with money? Because you said you haven't been motivated by money. I'm wondering what role money plays in your life, aside from the philanthropic aspects that you've shared already. I associate money with how you keep yourself safe and independent. And that came into focus for me at a time when I was working in a situation with a very unstable boss in a somewhat unstable team and function inside of a business. And for the first time in my life, it occurred to me that that form of employment could potentially end or get substantially disrupted in a way that might change my cash flow. And it shook me to the core in a way that actually surprised me and made me get more curious and examine much deeper my personal relationship with money. At the end of the day, I had done everything every expert or financial coach would advise you to do. I had maxed out my 401k. I live below my means. I save money. I'm debt-free. All of the things that you talk about, I have the emergency fund for longer than they prescribe it to be. And what I realized and learned in that moment, even after sitting down with my own financial advisor and accountant, they could take me through all of the numbers in the world and explain to me, hey, if this unplanned disruption does happen, you have this amount of runway before you would even have to start doing anything dire. And then after that, it's really not that dire for this much longer. And I could not internalize that in any way, shape or form. It shook me down to the level of I was picturing myself never working again, not having enough money for food, even though it wasn't true. So I learned a very important lesson about the difference between your head and your heart when it comes to money. We all do have some emotional tie to money in big and small ways. In my case, it's the ability to continue to be independent and to provide for myself. And I don't have a trust fund coming. So (laughs) there's not some outside source that just kicks in if life doesn't go really well for me. I had to get much more curious about where did that come from and what beliefs was I holding that were keeping me from the my normal, very logical mode of being able to say, the numbers add up to this. Smart people who do this for a living have given you these facts. And to me, the facts just felt not true, no matter how much data you could put behind it. And I'm so glad that you're sharing this. I can think of a couple of female executives that I work with who have experienced the exact same thing. I'm wondering, how did you move forward? And where do you think all of that was coming from? I will tell you, it started with heart palpitations and nightmares and like waking up with a sweat in the night and radical budget cutting and oversaving a bunch of panic behaviors, frankly, because I was confronting a fear. My fear in that instance was all tied to, I'm not going to have the freedom to make the choices for my life that I've worked so hard to be able to make. And I'm potentially going to have to go back to a set of circumstances that I felt less choice and less autonomy in and less healthy in. And so for me, that was about having some conversations with my financial planner, who isn't the warmest, fuzziest person on the face of the earth. And for some strange reason, pivoted in that moment to talk through some of those issues. And I thought this was very wise. He said, part of my job as a financial planner is to understand everyone's emotional relationship with money. And we talk about this sometimes as I'm getting closer 
toward retirement age. I'm not there, but it's in closer horizon than my first job. He said this to me more than once. By the time you retire, if you continue doing what you're doing, you'll have money to be able to retire. The question is, and he said, this is why I try to get inside of the heads of all my clients, their feelings about money. When you stop getting a paycheck, how are you going to feel about spending money when there's no more money coming in? For some people, they won't notice. They sort of never notice that it's not in balance. And for other people who are sort of hanging on to every penny and conscious of it, retirement to them is a time when now, even if you could afford your same lifestyle, you must tailor it down because you will run out of money. This is a very scary thought. So Karen, what was your answer? I thought to myself, wow, that's kind of a provocative thought, especially against the landscape where there was a near-term horizon event that that could happen. And I spent a lot of time talking to mentors and counselors and people that I trust about what was that tied to. And for me, it was the feeling of I'm the oldest child. I'm very responsible. There's, again, not some buffer safety net that exists somewhere in my network or life of someone's going to come in and write some checks for me if this doesn't work out. And for me, it was really once I cut it all the way down, kind of my version of imposter syndrome. It's like, aha, it's true. They were eventually going to find out you couldn't do it on your own. And it was the most shocking discovery because I'm not rolling around in my everyday life with huge amounts of imposter syndrome, probably because I like to try things and learn things and don't need to master things. So I feel like, I don't know, you learn something, it'll work out. It was sort of my version of imposter syndrome. It's like, aha. So if you stop making money at that level and then have to cut this thing back, I mean, what will people think? I mean, you've come this far and you've achieved all of this. You've been so successful. What was it all for? It's true. It finally caught up with you. They finally found out they were right. We all have this voice in our head. We do. And thank you for bringing it into this conversation. I think this is really important. Have you learned to move past the voice? Yes. The thing I think is once you recognize that that voice is there and what it's telling you, what I've discovered is you have an opportunity to intercept that voice more quickly when it shows up. I mean, it will always be a part of you in some sense. What I notice is I can catch it sooner and say, is that true? Who would you be without that story? I mean, truly, when I think about, is that true? At that point that I was telling you, I mean, I had this thought, which is so bizarre when I say it out loud, but we all have these moments alone in our heads. I was like, I will never work again. And I'm talking like, not at Walmart as a greeter, not as a barista, not as a, I was like, I will just never work again if this happens. That's not true. It's very bizarre to think that that's how far the scenario had gotten in my mind. And now if I have that thought, I mean, I work at a startup, although we're doing great. I mean, we could go out of business in a week through some bizarre series of circumstances because startups are that way. We're not on that path. But I thought to myself, if that happens, if the very worst outcome that I picture happens, yeah, I think I'll probably just go find something else to do. Maybe take a little time off, have a little breather, and I'll probably just go do something else. That would be okay. And I thought, wow, that's progress. Good job, self. It's huge progress. Because you know, you have those minutes with our CFO and it's like, oh, wow. Yeah, we got to close some deals or whatever that looks like. And then you have the thought in your head. I'm an executive. That's probably expensive. They'd probably have to cut me. Ah, okay, that's probably fine. I'll just go find something else. You're resourceful. Yeah. It's so interesting. The story is so powerful. We have these voices and we've heard from other guests. A way to tame them is to name them. I'm curious, have you ever named your voice? Oh, absolutely. Yes. So I first of all think of Judge Judy. Because we all judge ourselves, circumstances, and others. And we think people are doing that to us too. So I'll be like, oh, Judge Judy, there you are. And I hear Job in minutes where like maybe other people are having a life disruption. I think, well, at least I'm doing better than that. And I'm like, 
you know what? You were there just a few short years ago with this exact same paralyzing set of thoughts. Hi, Judge Judy. There you are. Absolutely. And then the other one, I call her Connie Controller, because it's like, I must control everything at all times. And therefore, the world will be a completely wonderful place if I could control the stock market, what happens at a startup, what my family says to me when I'm tired, whatever that looks like. So I just say Connie Controller. It's like, that feeling that if we control everything, it's all going to be okay because everything will go according to plan. And something I've discovered about Connie Controller is her downside, which is sometimes when you must control something and have it be exactly the way that it has been planned, you missed out on a way it could be better, like less effort, more fun, more enjoyable. You could connect with people in a better and different way if you could just sort of let go and go with the flow a little bit. So yeah, I try to recognize it quicker. Like anyone, I'm not 100%. I do try to do a quicker intercept and reset on that. Erin, this has been wonderful. Tell us about your recent book, because you really bring everything that we've been talking about together in the book. Yes, it might surprise you to discover that grandfather that was eating the shredded wheat is now about to be 100 years old, and he still trades stocks every single day on his three iPads, his smartwatch, his two laptops. And I have an investment account for him. Every month, he prints out statements, three hole punches them, and we have portfolio reviews. I've done four books. I keep saying I had nothing left to say worth writing down. And then I thought, I have learned so much from him. And he is the model of what we would all want to be if we lived to be 100. He is tech savvy. He's current on the news. He has a hearty appetite. He loves a great debate. He's still investing and is not going to outlive his money at 100 years of age. And so we did this book together called Sundays with Salvatore, 52 Recipes to Cultivate Conversation, Connection, and Community. And he wrote the afterword to the book. And it's themed around our Sunday dinners we've been having together for years. So there's 52 chapters, 52 weeks in a year. Every chapter is a story, a piece of his wisdom, a little prompt for me to make his wisdom your own. And then our family recipes, many of which are in my grandmother's handwriting. There's a picture for every recipe so you can cook and chat and convene and maybe even discuss your stock portfolio as I share in the book. Karen, will you share one of your favorite of the 52 conversations you bring to life in your book? My favorite and I think most important lesson learned from my grandfather that he embodies in a very authentic way is contentment is the most worthwhile wealth. Wow. That's good and heavy. Karen, tell us what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? My next money conversation will be about how we can continue to build our brand as a startup. I literally was working on a document right before our conversation that I (laughs) referred to as Big bang for baby bucks. Oh, Karen, this is important. This is really important. But I know if something happens, there's a million other things you'll be doing. Would you share with our listeners, where's the best place for them to find you? You can find me on all of your favorite social media platforms. I have my most active presence on LinkedIn. Thank you very much for sharing these wonderful stories and yourself with us on Money Tales. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. 
If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcast at See you next time. Thank you.